Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. The Bulwark's Will Salatin is sitting in for Damon Linker this week, and our special guest is David Frum, staff writer at The Atlantic. Welcome, one and all. It has been a really moving, emotionally gut-wrenching week of hearings on Capitol Hill from the January 6th committee. I think that the hearing that featured Rusty Bowers, Brad Raffensperger, Gabriel Sterling, and the election workers, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, was probably the most emotionally gripping testimony that we have seen. David from I want to start with you because there are a lot of people saying that these hearings, they're hoping they'll influence the midterms or they think that they are an extended, if you will, referral to Merrick Garland at the Justice Department to pursue criminal charges. You don't see it that way, do you? No, I, I see these hearings as part of a process of public education and part of a process, especially of Republican public education. So when people say nothing matters or these hearings aren't accomplishing anything, they're missing how the public mind works. Obviously, most people vote in the terms are going to vote on inflation, the cost of living, the chaos of the airports. I'm at one of those chaotic airports right now, as you may hear. Um, what we're watching also happening is Republicans being convinced that Trump is a liability and that they need to shift the future of their party if they can find a way to do so without admitting that they were wrong in the first place. And meanwhile, there may be some referrals, maybe not of the very top people, but of enough subordinate level people, we can hope, that the message is sent, if a president of the United States asks you to do something illegal, don't do it because you could end up going to prison. Yeah. Will, the committee has extended its hearings because they're getting new information, both from this documentary that has come to light that was in process and apparently involved a lot of the key figures. And so the committee is now going over that footage. And uh, there are also things that have come in on the tip line and something that I found a little mysterious, something about information from the National Archives. But speaking of the National Archives... One of the things that the committee has been at pains to show is that in contrast to the usual story about how, well, it was a a demonstration that got a little out of hand, is just how many different stages, how coordinated this was. It was a true attempt to upend a democratic election. And one of those planks is the fake electors that were submitted to the National Archives. What's your view? Well, the electors thing is kind of fascinating to me because it's not clear to me who knew what 
who was in people who were involved in the electors plot. The last hearing we had indicated that a lot of people who participated as fake electors believed, and people who set up those fake electoral slates, believed they were contingent. That is to say, people were signing documents and saying they were electors, and it was all contingent on Trump actually winning in court so that his electors would be legit. Mm. But some people who were involved in this process, and I think it's the job, obviously, of the investigators to find out who knew that that was not the case, that they then, in in fact, did submit these electoral slates claiming that they were already legit. That was John Eastman's plan, that first we tell people to become fake electors. We get them to meet, they sign on, here's our electoral slate. And then we use the fact that we have this slate. We submit that to Mike Pence. We send it through Ron Johnson's office, et cetera. And we try to convince Congress that, hey, we have dueling slates here. There's ambiguity. You'll have to make this call. It's somehow up in the air. So I think some of those people who are being investigated in the electoral slates are being investigated so that they will tell who told them what, and we'll find out who was pulling the strings behind that operation. Okay. Linda, I found all of the testimony gripping, and I was so angry about Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman in particular. I mean, I was angry about all of it, but these good women who are just being good citizens and helping people to do their civic duty and are subjected, you know, Trump understood completely what he was doing when he loosed his barbarians, his goons on people. He knew. And that's why he named people specifically so that they would be targeted and intimidated and hounded. And these people's lives have been destroyed. And it is just beyond belief. And, you know, this kind of mob boss thing that the whole Republican Party is, you know, almost the entire Republican Party signed on for. But I want to ask you to comment in particular on this Rusty Bowers. Rusty Bowers was dignified, intelligent, moving, right? He gave that great statement about how he was being asked to do something that would violate his oath, and he would not do that. He voted for Trump. You can question his judgment. But he voted for Trump in 2020. Nevertheless, when asked to do something illegal and immoral, he wouldn't do it. But then he was asked, if Trump were running in 2024 against Biden, would he support him? And he said yes. I know. Stunning. Absolutely (laughs) stunning. And it reflects so much of what I have seen among my friends who voted for Trump and some of them in 16, some of them in 16 and 20, who know that he is an immoral man, who know that he has not a conservative bone in his body. He really doesn't, unless you equate racism with conservatism, which a lot of people seem to, (laughs) right, on the left uh, would contend, but he's no conservative. And yet you have conservatives who say, well, I like what he did before the pandemic. You know, I agree with a number of things he did. I think the economy was better under Trump until the pandemic. I think the tax reform bill, I wouldn't have done it exactly the way he did it, but there were many things in that I approved. There were changes uh, in other programs that I approved of. But you can't get beyond the fact that this man is not a small D Democrat, that he does not believe in the democratic process. He is totally ignorant of the Constitution 
and he certainly does not uphold the Constitution. So in my view, that's disqualifying. You can't not support the Constitution of the United States, not support the orderly transition of one administration to the next, not abide by the will of the people, and get the support of reasonable people. And so I was extraordinarily disappointed in Rusty Bowerson saying that. But, you know, there are a lot of people, there's a kind of tribalism out there. People are Republicans first. You know, they're not Americans first. They're Republicans first. And they want to be in power. And they like the Republican policies. And so they'll look the other way when you have somebody like Trump. But it was deeply disappointing after what I thought was uh, next to Lady Ruby and Shay uh, Moss, uh, next to their testimony, I thought Rusty Bauer's testimony was the most moving I've heard in, in all of these hearings. And he clearly understood how dangerous what he was being asked to do was. And yet he would Again, support a man who, if he were elected in 2024, there's no guarantee whatever that he would give up power in 2028. Yeah, exactly. All right. Bill Galston, I wonder if you can do a little therapy with me here. Last night I was on MSNBC and we were talking about the Rusty Bowers thing. And I ventured that, you know, we never Trump Republicans have been willing to... um, swallow a lot for the sake of democracy. We, you know, voted for Democrats that we disagree with on about 65, 75% of issues, I would say, uh, because we feel that there are more important issues at stake. And I said, the Democrats, and you know, I agree, Republicans really are a threat. Uh, many Republicans are a threat to our democratic system. But Democrats need to take some steps, too, to show their commitment to democracy above all. And I suggested that one way they might do that would be by not running someone against Brad Raffensperger for Secretary of State of Georgia. Say, you know what? We want to make a statement here. They did it in Utah. The Democratic Party threw its support behind Evan McMullen, who's challenging Mike Lee. Bill, you know, the reaction on Twitter was... uh, I would say pretty unequivocally horrified on the part of the left-wing Twitter mob. So what do you think? I could respond to your specific suggestion, Mona, by saying that I certainly think it would have been a fine gesture on the part of Democrats to do what you recommended. I'm not surprised that they didn't, but certainly it would have been a gesture of, I'd say, genuine thanks you know, for the Republicans who paid a very high price to behave honorably. But more broadly, I will have to confess as a Democrat uh, that the Democratic Party has not made life any easier for the likes of you because people like you are looking to the Democratic Party, however flawed it may be, to provide an effective opposition and counterweight and even, shall I say, bulwark (laughs) against forces that we both deplore. You've said many times on this show that that should have been job one for Democrats and for the Biden administration. I agree with you, and regrettably it hasn't been. My hope is that after November, 
the urgency of the situation and the importance of job one will take center stage. And uh, there's no way of guaranteeing that, but I think the logic of the situation will probably push the party in that direction. If I may be permitted one more comment, Mm -hmm. I hope very much that David Frum is right about the effect of the hearings. At this point, regrettably, and I say this based on a survey of various public opinion surveys that I just posted on the Brookings website, the audience for the hearings is overwhelmingly democratic. 70% of the people who've watched all or even part of the hearings approve of Joe Biden's performance as president. 70% expect to vote for Democratic candidates this fall, etc. I would be a lot happier if more Republicans and even independents were tuning in. That said, it may be that Republicans will get the message anyway. I note with interest and more than a small measure of pleasure that none other than Donald Trump is now complaining about Kevin McCarthy's decision to pull the plug on Republican participation in the committee, because now Trump says rightly, uh, there's no one to tell his story or to defend him on the committee. And whose fault is that? It's pretty clear what the answer to that question is. Right. David, from one more thing, which is that leaving aside the question about whether it would be wise or unwise to actually prosecute Trump, if you look at the polls on that question and should Trump be criminally liable for what he did, you see that there's been an uptick in every respondent group. So among Democrats, there's been an uptick. Among independents, strong uptick. And even among Republicans, now admittedly, they start from a much lower base. But even among Republicans, the number who say, yes, he should be prosecuted has ticked up since the hearings began, which is, you know, maybe an indication that it is having an effect you know, however few the people are who are actually sitting and viewing it, the message is getting out. What do you think? I think the way Republicans are going to conceptualize this is summed up by a little incident that happened in the state of Missouri. Eric Reitens, who was the former governor of that state, now running for the Republican nomination for Senate, posted a video ad in which he imagined himself fantasized about murdering his political opponents. Mm-hmm. So uh, a little out of bounds uh, by most people's account. <laughs> How did Republicans talk about that? None of his opponents were willing to say, you know, on the whole, fantasizing about murdering a political opponents to be deployed. No, what they said was, by fantasizing about murdering his opponents, Eric is giving an opportunity to Democrats to criticize us. And so without criticizing him, but no, but wait, this is, you laugh, but this is important because this is actually a positive thing. They don't dare say no murdering opponents. But what they do dare say is talking about murdering our opponents is a door open to our adversaries. And since the most important thing is to keep them out of power, therefore we must, with regret, shut you down for talking about murdering your political opponents. Well, I think something like that is coming out of these hearings for Donald Trump, which I think it's going to be a very rare Republican who can say, you know what? President of the United States shouldn't violently try to overthrow elections. That's just wrong. And if he does it, there has to be some law to punish him for it. But I think there will be a lot of Republicans, including the editorial writers at the New York Post, the editorial writers at the Wall Street Journal, both the Murdoch-owned papers, and both of them presumably speaking with some kind of permission from the Murdoch organization to say, by trying to overthrow an election by violence, Trump has opened the door to the worst possible outcome, which is a democratic advantage.
We now come to our second topic of the day, which is related to what David Frum was just saying about the Republican Party. We're going to have a look at the state of the GOP. I'll start with you, Will. The Washington Post has accounted, well, this was a couple of weeks ago, but uh, that there were more than 100 election deniers that have won Republican primaries so far this year. And just this past week, the GOP of Texas met, and um, unlike the national GOP, which in 2020 did not produce a party platform, but simply said, whatever the Fuhrer, I mean, I mean, whatever Trump wants is what we're for. This group did produce a platform, and it included that Joe Biden was not legitimately elected, that homosexuality is an abnormal lifestyle choice. They want to abolish the Federal Reserve, repeal the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and vote on secession. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So first I should qualify this. I am from Texas. And so I can tell you I can tell you something (laughs) about the Texas Republican Party, which is that as crazy as the Republican Party nationally is, and as crazy as many, if not most, rank and file Republicans in Texas are these days, the Texas Republican Party, that is the people who meet and pass this kind of a platform, the delegates, the convention, they're insane. They're actually, they've for many, many years, they've been off the wing. So that is the hope that what you're seeing out of the Texas Republican Party doesn't even represent Republicans in Texas, much less Republicans nationally. However, I think it is reasonable to suggest, as I think you are, that they are on the leading edge of some trends and the trends are dangerous, right? The trends are election denial, I wasn't even aware of the uh, what was what was the uh, the item about repealing the Voting Rights Act. Yep, repeal the I Voting mean, Rights Act. Yeah. So yeah. so like the, by of the course- way, let me just say, having been a conservative for decades, I think but I can't say for sure. I suspect that what they really think is that it's no longer necessary because we've gotten rid of all that bad racism stuff, rather than we actually want to suppress the votes of African-Americans. But I can't say that with confidence. I'm guessing. (laughs) Right. Well, I I assure you that state Republican Party wants to repeal the Voting Rights Act will be a major talking point for Democrats in the election. So that's they're already serving their purpose politically. But the one I wanted to flag of the three you mentioned, Mona, Mm -hmm. was the one about homosexuality. And that is because this is an issue that has sort of gone away as Republicans looked up and noticed polls moving dramatically against them, right? I mean, we're we're only 15 years out, about 15 years out from, you know, George W. Bush running for president with anti-gay marriage being one of his main platform planks. And what's happened is there's just been a sea change in public opinion about homosexuality. People sort of acknowledge that it, it wasn't harmful. It wasn't like abortion where you could like say they're killing babies or something. It just live and let live. But mm-hmm. so we will have within the next week, an opinion coming down from the Supreme Court of the United States that will roll back Roe v. Wade, overturn Roe v. Wade. And part of that opinion, if it looks anything like the draft opinion that was leaked, will say, hey, we're just talking about abortion here. We, the Supreme Court, are not threatening to roll back all of the other privacy rights that we established that were in the neighborhood of Roe v. Wade, right? And 
there isn't really a constitutional basis for drawing that distinction, right? That is just, well, we don't intend to do that. When the Texas Republican Party says, hey, we want to go all the way back. We want to restore the right to discriminate against people for being gay. This is not gay marriage or something. This is like to discriminate. You have the right to discriminate against someone for being homosexual, period. If people start to get the idea that the Republican Party generally wants to move back in that direction and the Supreme Court is overturning essentially the whole slew of privacy cases or the basis for the, that slew of privacy cases, which are all unenumerated, they're not mentioned in the Constitution, then you could start to see a libertarian backlash against this movement to return us to the 1950s. By the way, is it a thing in Texas that they have this mistaken idea that they have the right to secede from the union? That keeps coming up, you know? <laughs> and it's not true, okay? I think we settled that in 1865. States don't have the right to secede, but you keep hearing these Texans say, oh no, we have a special right. Well, never mind. All right, I'm going down a rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> For now, Mona, I think they'll settle for having their own electrical grid. <laughs> right, right. That's really true. So I, I'm going to come next to you, Bill Galston. I want to um, suggest that there is another way to look at the state of the Republican Party. Because, I mean, as crazy and extreme and Trumpified as it has become, there are some straws in the wind, like a poll that came out of New Hampshire and some focus group stuff, which tends to suggest that though Republicans won't say that they dislike Trump or that they you know, wouldn't vote for him, they kind of do want someone else in 2024. They want mm-hmm. someone younger, someone who has less baggage. Do you think that's out there? That's in the wind? If there's any sanity left in the ranks <laughs> of the Republican Party, that's exactly what they should be looking for. Uh, that poll out of New Hampshire was really stunning because it gave Ron DeSantis a two-point edge over Trump in the New Hampshire Republican primary. And if you look in the internals of that poll, you'll find that DeSantis also enjoyed a substantial edge over Trump in second-place choices. So he emerged in that poll as the more broadly acceptable candidate. No question about it. What's going on? I think that the Republican Party is beginning to look for people with Trump's views, but not his vices. And uh, that's not necessarily a losing strategy. Only some of his vices. (laughs) Well, okay. Uh, You know, I'm trying to look on the bright side as a Democrat. I'm no great fan of Ron DeSantis. But I have to say that although he's a threat to a lot of things I care about, I don't think he's a threat to democracy in the same way that Trump is. Matter of fact, I find it difficult to believe that any other credible Republican on offer poses the same kind of threat. Uh, I hope I'm not being Pollyannish about that. So in that respect, and here I agree with David, If Republicans, even without watching the hearings because they can't bear to, are getting the message that Donald J. Trump may be even more of a liability in two years than he is now, that could make a big difference in the future of the party. I have taken the position up to now that if Trump presents himself for the nomination, he will get it. 
I haven't seen enough evidence to revise that view yet, but I'm beginning to attach a smaller probability estimate to Trump's victory in the Republican primary than I would have a month or two ago. And I do think that the number of Republicans who are willing to stand up in these hearings and tell the truth in great riveting particular detail uh, is starting to sink in. The Republicans would have to be inhumanly obtuse to be entirely resistant to this kind of evidence. Can I add a a footnote to what Bill just said um, about the views and the vices? I don't think Republicans care very much about Donald Trump's views. And in fact, very few of the views he campaigned on in 2016 became the views of his administration. Remember in 2016, Donald Trump campaigned as a kind of welfare state nationalist, that he was going to preserve Social Security, preserve Medicare, eliminate the carried interest loophole, um, raise taxes on the rich, but really go hard on a kind of national redevelopment. He didn't do any of those things. And no one all that much cared inside the Republican world. What they like is his affect. What they like is his manner, that he's rude, he's overbearing. But they don't care so much about the content of that rudeness and that overbearingness. And so DeSantis bullying Disney works just as well as Donald Trump violently trying to overturn an election. And so I I very much agree with what Bill is saying, is that DeSantis seems like a more normal actor, unpleasant in a lot of ways, and many people may dissent from his policy prescriptions. But we're back in the world of politics where the Republicans try to rewrite rules to their advantage rather than break rules to their advantage. So, Linda, do you agree with that? And I would also like you to um, respond to what I think was a great tweet that makes the opposite case. So it's from Sarah Longwell, uh, the publisher of The Bulwark, and she's actually one of the people who said that in focus groups since the hearings began, none of the Trump voters that she has talked with last couple of weeks have said they want him to run again, which is interesting. She said that was never the case before. It was always about 50%. So that's interesting. On the other hand, on the GOP is still crazy front, she tweeted this, quote, Eric Greitens plus Herschel Walker plus Doug Mastriano plus Carrie Lake plus Blake Masters plus Dr. Oz plus Ron Johnson plus a bunch of stop the steal secretaries of state plus whatever lunatic emerges in the Michigan GOP gubernatorial primary equals the most insane field of GOP candidates since Trump dined alone. I love that. That's great. Uh, Makes Twitter worthwhile. Uh, Look, I think the problem is, uh, and this is the problem I have with uh, Bill's analysis, is that only Trump can stop Trump from running. And, you know, if he wants the attention, if he thinks he's going to be able to raise money, uh, he's going to run. And if he runs, even if there are alternative candidates, as I hope there will be, we may see a repeat of 2015, which is, you know, Trump didn't win a majority of primary voters in 2016. Uh, He was not able to win really, you know, more than about 30, 35% until it became, you know, obvious that he was going to be the nominee. So, you know, that, that is my worry is that even if uh, DeSantis, Mike Pence, uh, 
I don't know, others uh, decide to challenge that Trump doesn't need to win 50% of that vote to be able to clear the field and become the nominee again. That is one problem. The other problem is, you know, for conservatives like myself, I want to be able to vote for a Republican again for president. I do not agree with much of the agenda of the Biden administration. I think Biden's done some good things, but on the whole, I've not been happy with his performance. So I would like to be able to vote for a Republican. Whether um, I could hold my nose and vote for DeSantis, I don't know. But it's something that as somebody who does have strongly held conservative views, I want to go back to being able to vote for a candidate who's going to have policies that I can support rather than policies that, you know, I have to be a constant critic of. So my concern is that Trump is uncontrollable. And frankly, going back to our earlier discussion about the hearings, I mean, my hope is that there will be an indictment. I would like to see Trump indicted. I think there's some concern that if he is indicted, it had better be a, you know, absolutely um, steel-clad case because the worst thing in the world would be to indict him, try him, and have him be acquitted. But, you know, I think that there have to be consequences to what he did. And I think the only thing that would be short of death that would prevent Donald Trump from running would be uh, being indicted. Oh, Bill, do you have a comment on what Linda said? Well, actually, a comment that will do double duty is a comment on what Linda said and on one point that David made. Linda, I don't think you're going to get your Reagan conservative Republican Party back. In my judgment, and I hope I'm wrong about this, I think that Donald Trump has irreversibly transformed uh, the nature of the Republican Party and what it stands for. Uh, And I think the future of the Republican Party is Trumpism without Trump. I do not believe that's simply a matter of affect. On key issues at home and abroad, I think Donald Trump has changed the identity of the Republican Party. On immigration, for example, on trade, and on the role of America in the world. Those are beliefs that he developed over a period of more than 30 years before he entered the White House. And I think those beliefs structured a lot of the substance of what he did as president of the United States. If you think that the Republican Party is going to become as supportive, uh, Linda, of the kind of immigration policy you favor, David, I know you disagree with that policy, then I think you're going to be very disappointed. And I predict that you will be holding your nose if you vote for Republicans for the remainder of your career. Oh, that's very sad. <laughs> well, I'm just, uh, yeah, I hope I'm You're, wrong about You may this. very well be right. We will now turn to our third segment, which is a potpourri of different topics that have come up this week. We're going to do this slightly differently from usual. Rather than have everybody comment on everything, we're going to divide it up among our panelists and begin with guns. The Supreme Court released a decision that struck down a New York state law that limited 
the ability of people to carry guns outside of their homes. But this comes hard on the heels of the announcement of a gun compromise in the Senate that received 14 Republican votes. So, David, can you give us your quick view of this compromise? Do you think it's important? Do you think it's trivial? And how does the Supreme Court's ruling affect things, if at all? I think the compromise is important, not so much for what it accomplishes, although it, it may do some good, but for the very fact that they've been able to break the logjam for the first time in a long time to get Congress to act in a way that is less permissive on guns. Remember, since Sandy Hook, people say nothing happened. A lot happened. After Sandy Hook, state after state after state changed its laws to make guns more available in more places with less scrutiny, to liberalize carry laws, to allow guns in bars and churches, to allow them just about everywhere. This is the first time since the 1990s that we've seen the federal government, or really almost any state body, take a step in the other direction, and as you say, do it with Republican votes. Right. I will just note that there were concurrences, and they said that this ruling does not affect who may lawfully possess a firearm or the requirements that must be met to buy a gun, nor does it decide anything about the kind of weapons that people may possess and so forth. So that's interesting. The Supreme Court ruling, however, is a giant step in the other direction, because what the Supreme Court did in this recent case with the New York carry law is the same thing it did in Heller, which is it took a big step in principle and a tiny step in practice. New York isn't going to have to change its carry laws very much, but what the Supreme Court has done in these two decisions is to take a constitutional right that was understood for most of the first 200 years of the country to be a right of states to organize militias independent of the national armed forces. That's how, from writing the Bill of Rights until the 21st century, the Second Amendment was generally understood. It was a right of the states to have a militia. And the Supreme Court individualized that and has now spread that and has now widened that individual right to be a right not only of gun ownership, but of gun carriage in public places. So that is a dramatic thing, even though they have not taken such a big step in the actual concrete measures. So this is now a national issue, and we're heading for a national showdown over whether or not this is going to be a society with guns everywhere with all the consequences, or whether there is going to be now some kind of national framework because the Supreme Court is taking away the ability of states to have their own state framework. Okay. My favorite gun story of the week came from Miami, where the Miami police hosted a Guns for Ukraine buyback scheme. (laughs) People could turn in their guns, 50 bucks for a handgun, $100 for a long gun, so forth, and the guns would be sent to Ukraine, which is just... Perfect. Will, since I heard you laughing, I'm coming to you next. President Biden has asked for a gas tax holiday as uh, a way to um, deal with the problem of high gasoline prices. You're not a fan. Oh, I hate this. First of all, I want to thank David for years and years of his writing on gun control or what a gun safety or whatever we're calling it now. He's been preaching sanity for a very long time and not getting it. Mm. So I wanted to thank him for that. On the gas tax, I hate this in so many ways. Look, if Joe Biden had come out this week and said, we are in a global struggle against Vladimir Putin and the reassertion of empires invading countries, land wars in Europe, we need to maintain global resolve. The sanctions we have imposed, the cutting off of Russian oil from the international market has driven up 
the price of oil. It's hurting everyone. We need Americans to stand strong. I am cutting the gas tax to make it a little bit easier to bear that burden so that we can sustain our international resolve. If he had said that, I think I would have been okay with that, even though the gas tax thing itself is a gimmick. That's not what he said. Joe Biden didn't even mention Russia or Ukraine till he was halfway through with this speech. The speech was basically, look, people are suffering at the pump, so we're going to relieve the gas tax to make the price of gas lower. Look, it won't work. I don't believe the that the companies will give back the difference. It's going to take money out of the highway trust fund, which Biden is basically going to shovel money in from other accounts. So if you're not driving a car, you're now going to be subsidizing the people who are driving cars. It completely messes with supply and demand, right? The cure for high prices is high prices. If you eliminate the gas tax, you make it easier for people to afford gas, they continue to pay the high prices, and then the companies are going to continue to charge that. It doesn't change the supply at all, which is what really needs to be changed. So for many, many reasons, I think this is a terrible idea. Will, that was very free market. Um, can you uh, just elaborate real quick? Uh, you said that the cure for high prices is high prices. Can you elaborate on that for a sec? Yeah. I mean, look, it, it hurts to pay for a gallon of gas these days, right? The, mm-hmm. the prices are high. There's a limited supply for many reasons, some of them being you know, related to the war, some of them being to limited refinery capacity, which is it takes a while for the industry to get that back up. You can argue that we need to be drilling more and companies didn't do that. They're getting in enormously high prices for a barrel of oil now. They're making enormous profits. There's not a huge incentive for them. But basically, if you make it easier for people to pay the high prices that are, exist right now, then the demand stays high. When demand is higher than supply, price goes up. What you need to do is reduce demand, right? And Mm -hmm. so you're artificially subsidizing the demand by eliminating the gas tax and thereby you're sustaining the high prices. That's sort of the theory. Right. Thank you for that. Linda, the news from Uvalde just gets more horrifying and unbelievable with every passing week. So this week we learned that the door to those classrooms were not, the doors were not locked. That pretty much everything that the police told us about how this thing unfolded was a lie. Well, we don't know, frankly, whether the doors were locked or not. They were not secured. That That is what the testimony was. What we do know is that no one ever went over and, you know, tried to open the door uh, to test whether or not it was locked. And we also know that, uh, not only was the uh, person in charge, uh, Pete Arredondo, preventing officers from uh, going in, or at least the five officers under his control, but there were dozens of officers from all different uh, arms uh, of uh, law enforcement. The state police were there. The local police were there. The school police, which is what Adondo was in charge of, were there. And finally, you had the Office of Customs and Border Enforcement officers who came, and they were ultimately the heroes of the day. But it was over an hour that took place. We also saw in these hearings that were held before uh, the Texas uh, State Senate that not only were the officers there, but they were very well armed. These were not guys that, you know, had revolvers and were going to go try and face a guy with an AR-15. There were officers there behind ballistic shields with long guns. And there were so many of them that if any attempt had been made to storm that room, it would have saved lives. We also found out 
that those officers were there within three minutes of the killer entering the classroom. And so, you know, this is the most abominable failure of law enforcement that I've ever seen in my lifetime. I've never seen a story where you had such a failure of law enforcement. And this is a small town. This is a community where everybody knows everybody else. And I can just see this ripping apart that community. One of the officers, and you clued me in on this, Mona, one of the officers who was there, his wife was one of the teachers that was shot and called him as she was dying and asked for help. And he tried to move forward. And did they let him go try to rescue his wife or those children? No, they took his gun away and removed him from the building. So this is a really shocking story. And I don't know how to explain it, but I know there are going to be consequences. Uh, there must be consequences. And part of the problem is that the families, you know, you if you're a law enforcement officer, you can't necessarily be sued. You know, the courts have said you can't sue somebody for, you know, not protecting you. Yep. They do not have an affirmative duty. That's right. They don't have an affirmative duty. Well, it's just, it so casts a shadow of disgrace on these law enforcement officers who literally stood by as shooting was taking place. I mean, from every description, and we may eventually hear tapes, etc. you know, there were screams, there were children crying out, there were little girls on the telephone uh, with 911 begging for help. And nothing was done. This was a a monumental failure and a disgrace. And it is, I think, the the last nail in the coffin on that meme that is so popular on the right, namely, the answer to a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Right. (laughs) There were lots of guns there. There were so many more guns there. Uh, Yeah. I mean, but nobody was willing to risk um, his life. You know, so and to, the police to, chief has been uh, put on it. He has been, right. He has been yeah. put on administrative. But a month later, yeah. a month yeah. after yeah, yeah. the incident, why was why didn't it happen the next day? Yeah. Every one of the officers there, I think, yeah. should be looked into. I mean, at a certain point, yeah, you're supposed to take orders from the commander. Apparently, nobody was in command there. But at a certain point, you do what's right. You take it upon yourself. As that uh, Customs and Border Protection agent did. As they did. And, you know, they were able to kill him. Bill, President Biden is going to Saudi Arabia on a Mideast swing. And this is quite a uh, come down from the Biden who swore when he first entered office that Saudi Arabia was going to be a pariah and be treated as such. Now he seems to be going hat in hand. Are you asking me to disagree? <laughs> I'm asking for your views. As always, I'm asking for your views. Because I can't. Uh, <laughs> look, there's an old maxim, make your words sweet because you may have to eat them. Mm. I mean, there are some basic structural facts which current events are, are now revealing. We can talk about energy independence all we want, but... That independence is a statistical artifact. It is not a fact. Oil is in a global market. The supply is set by the aggregate of production of that market. You know, and we're now looking at a situation 
in which there are too many drivers <laughs> chasing too little oil and gasoline. We're also looking at a situation in which the refinery capacity of the United States has declined by 6% in the past three years. and Because where, of the pandemic. Uh, not just because. Mostly. Yeah, uh, I beg to differ. A lot of refineries have been shut down because refiners can no longer operate them profitably, consistent with the added costs that have been piled on them. Because demand collapsed during the pandemic. Right. But a number of those refineries haven't just been closed. They are being torn down. Hmm. A leading refiner couldn't afford the $1.5 billion in additional costs needed to retrofit the refinery to comply with contemporary clean air standards. So the, the head of the refiner tried to shop the refinery to other people at a bargain basement price. He got no takers. Hmm. And uh, there is a refinery in the Philadelphia area that has been shut down and is now being dismantled to make way for a new housing project. So this 6% decline is not just because somebody closed the door and turned the key. It's because the structure of incentives for the modern gasoline refining sector is out of whack. And as I've said in print now several times, we can't muddle our way through this anymore. We need a plan to coordinate whatever transition is going to take place in the context of an insecure and changing global market for oil and oil products. So the visit to Saudi Arabia by the president is simply, you know, the tip of a very deep policy iceberg that we're going to have to confront as a country, both parties together with a sane and balanced view of what the energy future is going to require. Otherwise, we're going to see a lot more of this and Americans aren't going to like it. We have come to the highlight or low light of the week. And I will start with you, Linda Chavez. Well, uh, this is the week that uh, celebrates the 50th anniversary of Title IX, which, as our listeners probably know, is the federal law that guarantees non-discrimination on the basis of sex in education programs that receive federal aid. There was a revision to Title IX regulations that were handed down under the Trump administration, under Secretary Betsy DeVos, that had to deal with the way in which Title IX has been uh, interpreted to apply to allegations of sexual harassment and sexual assault. And those regulations gave due process to those accused of those infractions. And one of the things that the Biden administration promised during the campaign and has this week fulfilled is to issue new regulations, which essentially rescind the DeVos regulations. And that happened this week. And I'd like to uh, commend to our listeners an article that appeared a year ago in uh, the magazine Commentary. And that magazine and that article was about exactly uh, those regulations that the secretary handed down. And I think it would be good reading 
to be able to consider what the effect of these new Biden uh, regulations are going to be. The article was by Casey Johnson, and it was entitled, Will Biden Bring Back the Campus Star Chambers? There's been a lot of focus this week on these new Title IX proposed regulations, which are out now for commentary by the public. A lot of it has focused on the rules changes that affect transgender students, but I think you should not ignore the changes that will take place in terms of the way in which we deal with sexual harassment and sexual assault on campuses, and I think it's really unfortunate that the Biden administration uh, is basically going back to the days of uh, star chambers when uh, people are accused of these uh, infractions. I agree. And I would just say that those DeVos revisions of the regulations that had been promulgated by the Obama administration initially uh, were one of the very rare bright spots of the Trump years. I thought they were very, very much needed. And this is a shame because there are a lot of young men. And by the way, there are hundreds and hundreds of lawsuits from people who have been accused and not been able, for example, to confront witnesses against them, you know, have basic rights that Americans have enjoyed and the British, for that matter, have enjoyed for hundreds of years when accused of wrongdoing. Bill Galston. My highlight is something that We've already discussed on this program the compromise on gun safety. I particularly want to give a shout out to John Cornyn, who took more of a political risk than a lot of the other honorable participants in the compromise did, and was booed mercilessly for his efforts at another thing we've already discussed on this show, namely the Republican convention in Texas the convention of the state party. I also want to give a shout out to someone I don't often praise, namely Mitch McConnell. He quite deliberately created the political space within which it was possible for that compromise to take place. And uh, I think it represented a shrewd political judgment on his part that things had just gone too far. Enough was enough. And if the Republican Party was seen by the American people simply to have obstructed any action on gun safety, that a traditional Republican plus would turn into a minus. He's done this a couple of other times. He did it on the infrastructure bill. And behind the scenes, he also did it on the innovation and competition bill, which got very strong support in the Senate and is now on a conference committee. So he's not my favorite human being, but he is capable of a kind of wintry realism from time (laughs) to time that can yield good results. But mainly, you know, John Cornyn and a bunch of other Republicans who stuck their necks out. And by the way, also Chris Murphy and others on the Democratic side who told their troops in no uncertain terms that if they overreached on this, they would end up with nothing yet again. And he made them listen. And uh, that also, I think, is to be commended. Bill, that is a wonderful phrase. I think we've got the name of this podcast, Wintry Realism. (laughs) Excellent. All right. David Frum. My highlight. Ukraine was confirmed as a candidate member of the European Union. European Union is a big bureaucratic venture full of boring paperwork. It so often seems like the least romantic idea that human beings have ever had. 
And yet thousands of Ukrainians have died for it in streets and cities since 2014, when they took to the Maidan, the center of Ukraine's capital city, Kiev, to protest for entry to the European Union. And it's a reminder that this institution, as boring and bureaucratic as it is, which was, by the way, created with American leadership as well as European, it also needs something inspiring to Europe, the cockpit of the world's most violent wars, at peace with itself, democratic, joined to its comrade democracies in North America, enabling people to move back and forth between Lisbon and Warsaw as easily as Americans move from state to state. You know, it's worthwhile being reminded there's something inspiring about this bureaucracy, too, and that the valor and sacrifice of Ukrainians is being recognized in what is the beginning of a process, but in a fitting way. Amen. Excellent. Will Salatin. Inspiring bureaucrats. (laughs) (laughs) So I I can't top uh, David's. uh, That's really wonderful news about Ukraine, and that is the most important thing. But let me come back for my highlight to... um, Rusty Bowers. So I think many of us were struck by the language that he used in the January 6th hearing when he described why he refused to go along with Trump's scheme to overturn the election. He cited his oaths. He cited his oaths to God, his oath to the Constitution, his oath of office in Arizona. This is a very conservative guy, a very religious guy. And his language reminded me of another politician who uh, voted against Donald Trump, the only Republican senator who voted against Donald Trump in his first impeachment trial. And that's Mitt Romney, who said as a juror, he had sworn an oath before God to exercise impartial justice and that his oath was the most important thing to him. And it reminded me also of another senator, now a former senator, Jeff Flake from Arizona, who retired from the Senate rather than become a Trumpist and who wrote after he did so that He said, you can go elsewhere for a job, but you cannot go elsewhere for a soul. These are very seriously religious men who did the right thing. What do they have in common? They are all members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That is to say, they are Mormons, and they're part of a pattern. Um, Mormons are very conservative people. They are very uh, socially, morally conservative. And when they say that, unlike many white evangelicals, they mean it. They stood up to Donald Trump. They rejected his immorality. They rejected his attacks on the Constitution of the United States, which many Mormons also revere. And it's pretty well known, I think, that Mormon support for the Republican nominee for president dived in 2016 when Trump won the nomination. Mormons are also arguably an important reason why Joe Biden won Arizona in 2020. And it's because they take oaths seriously. They take principles seriously, many of them. I don't mean to say they're all great, you know, not all Mormons. Mike yeah. Lee, the Mike other Lee, senator from Utah. <laughs> absolutely. He, he, the, the, many, are, many are fallible. Many, are, many can be corrupted. Mike Lee is one of them. Bronna Romney McDaniel, another Mormon who is, you know, so I, I'm not going to say that there's something wonderful about all Mormons, but there is something in the faith that made many of these people strong. They take oaths and principles seriously. And one thing that they understand, a lot of these folks, is that character matters. Character was not just a gimmick for them. If you really understand character, what you understand is that a man of very low character is very dangerous. He will do corrupt things and he will attack the institutions that you believe in. That was the fundamental truth about Donald Trump. And many of these folks who understand character believed it and understood it and followed through on it. Well said. I would just add that the conduct of a number of Mormons in the last few years certainly commends their faith. I mean, the the fact is they've been one of the groups that's been possible to, you know, tease, humiliate, mock. Uh, there was a Broadway show, The Book of Mormon, which I did not see, but I gather was, you know, kind of 
uh, nasty about Mormons. And, you know, they may have some, some strange beliefs, by the way, most religions do, but okay. But the fact is, if you look at how they live, they certainly are proving that their principles mean something, or at least many of them are. I do have to laugh, though, when I recall this great bon mot from my late friend, Cato Byrne, who... I think it was in 2012 during the Republican primaries when she said, huh, the only candidate in the Republican primaries who's only had one wife is the Mormon. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Mona. Yeah. Can I drop a brief historical footnote here? Sure. The historical resonances of all of this uh, are very odd. The Republican Party, you may know, was founded in opposition to two things, slavery and Mormonism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you look at the platform of the first convention of the Republican Party, you will find on the frontispiece a depiction of the twin relics of barbarism, quote unquote, (laughs) slavery and polygamy. Uh, So the fact that Mormons have ended up as an important but conscientious and therefore critical part of the Republican base is really quite a wonderful full turn of the circle. Yeah, really, it really is. Well, you know, we Jews used to practice polygamy also. So, Well, that's true. And not only that, I do have a kind of sympathy for another religion that prescribes weird undergarments. Fair enough. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. I would like to commend a piece by Jack Goldsmith that appeared, I think it was in the New York Times. It was, yes. Title, Prosecute Trump, Put Yourself in Merrick Garland's Shoes. And he lays out the complications. Linda addressed this earlier in our discussion about her you know, desire to see Trump indicted, but he points out some of the problems with it. He doesn't come down on what Garland should do, but he just lays out the stakes here. And he says, yes, you know, a failure to indict Trump uh, would imply that a president who cannot be indicted while in office is above the law. And that's, that's a problem. And then he says, on the other hand, it would be seen by many as politicized retribution And he, now I'm quoting, along the way, the prosecution would further inflame our already blazing partisan acrimony, consume the rest of Mr. Biden's term, embolden and possibly politically enhance Mr. Trump, and threaten to set off tit-for-tat recriminations across presidential administrations. It's a very thoughtful and interesting exploration of a very, very important question, should Trump be prosecuted or not. And I will put that in the show notes. And with that, I want to thank Will Salatin for sitting in for Damon this week. I want to thank David Frum for braving uh, the airport Wi-Fi and other things to uh, come to us today. Much appreciated. This podcast is produced by Katie Cooper and our sound engineer today is Joe Armstrong. We appreciate all of you for listening, commenting, rating, and reviewing. And we will be back next week as every week. 